Welcome to Economic Frontiers from MIT's Initiative on the Digital Economy. I'm Andre Fradkin, and today our guest is Catherine Tucker of MIT Sloan School of Management. Catherine is one of the world's experts on digital advertising, and we start off by introducing the topic. Why is digital advertising interesting, and what is the unique perspective that academics have? Next, we move on to specific topics, such as retargeting, Twitter ads, ad blockers, and the role of privacy in digital advertising. Lastly, we move on to the broader debate about whether big data provides a sustainable advantage to companies. This is a really topical conversation for anyone thinking about modern business, and I really hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Let's get started. So uh, can you tell us why studying digital advertising is important, and what is the differing perspective of academics such as yourself versus industry practitioners? Okay, wonderful. So there's a lot of questions there. Let's start with the first one, which is why I'm excited about studying online advertising. So I think there were two reasons why I'm excited. The first are questions surrounding measurement, and the second set of questions are surrounding targeting. So the measurement piece is quite simple. If you go back to the 60s, 70s, 80s, academics have struggled to measure the effects of advertising and really come up short. And the reasons they've come up short are quite simply that it's very difficult to measure whether someone was exposed to an ad. Um, They may live in the area where a TV ad was playing, but you don't know if they watched it or not. And secondly, then even suppose you had some measure of whether they were exposed to the ad or not, it's then difficult to actually measure any proper effect on whether it affected whether they bought the ad or bought a product as a result of seeing the ad simply because there's probably something highly correlational about that. That if I'm the kind of person who's seen the ad, I'm also the person who's more likely to buy the product anyway. So you couldn't really cause, trace out a causal effect. So what's great about online advertising is it solves these two problems. First of all, we can actually measure quite accurately whether or not someone's seen an ad. And secondly, we can deal with the causality issue by running experiments so that some people see an ad, some people don't, and you have a really clean measure of the causal effect. So the measurement piece is wonderful. And, but you might think, okay, well, that's great. You can measure something well, but does that make it interesting? And I think what makes online advertising interesting is the targeting piece in that we can now use data to target advertising in ways we never thought of possible. We can give it towards an individual and perhaps have ads which are relevant for their interests, tastes, social networks, timing, all of these things. And with that, I think there are a lot of issues that are brought up, not just what kind of targeting makes an ad more effective, but is that kind of targeting desirable and so on. Also, the social issues as well as it just being a measurement exercise. Now, the other reason, now you asked me at the end of the question, uh, what kind of, what's the difference between an academic researcher such as myself and industry? And in general, the difference is in lots of my research, I tend to find that often state-of-the-art targeting and advertising techniques really don't work that well. Now, you don't see this in industry because, of course, people are trying to sell you these advertising techniques, but often they're just not that effective. So I'll give you one of my favorite examples, which is retargeting. So 
and in particular a form of retargeting which is called dynamic retargeting which is where in the ad unit itself you see a picture of the product you've just looked at so let me give you an example of that um i'm sure if you've gone to something like zappos and you look at a pair of sneakers you're then on cnn espn mysteriously in that ad unit that pair of sneakers is following you around the internet yeah that has happened to me and that in has fact, happened to you oftentimes it's explicitly a pair that i saw and decided not to buy because i didn't like it yeah no there's probably exactly gets the heart of the issue which is it something you, you you didn't you know you weren't there was a reason you went and not bought it and it's now stalking you around the internet now there were huge claims made for the effectiveness of these kind of ads you see numbers like 10 times more effective than a regular ad. But why is that coming from? It's coming from the fact that simply because you went to that website, you're probably in the market of sneakers, right? And so in other words, it's not causal, it's not related to you seeing the ad. It's just that we know that you're probably marketed, you're in the market for buying a sneaker. And so a lot of the claims made, I think, by industry often conflates this kind of correlational effect with actual the in, the actual incremental lift of the ad, and I think that's where I sort of stand apart from industry. Sometimes saying, "Look, if you just look at the incremental lift from these kind of ads, which follow you around the internet, it's really pretty pathetic. In fact, you might as well just do a normal ad unit." So, you've studied this using uh, a, a random experiment, but it seems like industry also has access to these experiments. So. Why were you able to do this analysis and they were not? I'm presuming that you actually used data from industry itself for this project. So that's exactly right. And this is interesting that I, I worked with what shall be nameless, a very large advertising agency who had this data and ran this experiment. Um, however, it was never really analyzed in any formal way. And I think part of the reason why even though industry can potentially run these experiments and it's easy for them to do so, but we don't see it happening, is that first of all, a lot of players in the ecosystem have motivations to not really admit that advertising is not that effective. So if you're that advertising agency and you just spent a lot of money on this ad unit, which is not that effective, it's not necessarily something you want to share with clients. It's sort of hard to justify in retrospect. And also, do you really want to risk um, the partnership with that advertising company providing that advertising technology? So I think there's a lot of, not a lot of incentives to deliver bad news, which is why I consider one of my jobs is to deliver the bad news that everyone's not really got a stake in listening to or producing. They, they listen when they hear it, but no one really wants to be the person in the industry saying that this doesn't work. That seems to be a really huge inefficiency in the in industry. So hopefully as your research <laughs> and other people's research uh, gets more widely spread, then uh, this money will stop being wasted. Presumably it's being, a lot of it is being wasted. That's it, yes. Yeah. I mean, we were talking earlier, uh, just before this interview started, about one of uh, my favorite papers, which is the one done by eBay, where they showed that they were just basically burning money advertising on the brand name eBay on Google. And they'd done that for over a decade at least. They'd just been burning that money. Experiment came in, worked out that was not a good idea. So these things take time, but once you've got the experiment in place, they tend to be pretty compelling. 
Although uh, one thing in defense of the advertisers is that there is enormous heterogeneity in the effects of advertising, presumably which is why targeting is so, <laughs> so interesting. So if a person has never used eBay before, then maybe an advertisement for eBay might, might help them out, whereas the typical person that already knows what eBay is doesn't need to be reminded of the fact. Okay, now that's a really good point. And so let me, let, me, let me put the positive spin on my paper, which we just talked about, about retargeting. Is that most of the time retargeting does not work very well. You might as well just have a picture, an attractive picture, an attractive logo. The one time it actually works is when you get evidence that person is back in the market. So let's imagine you were doing a retargeted ad for hotels. Then if we see someone who sort of was looking at hotels but didn't go and book one, suddenly return and start using TripAdvisor. That is indication that a retargeted ad with a very specific hotel in it, which you'd already thought about, could be incredibly potentially effective. So I think a positive spin of the research is that often you find that new advertising techniques don't work that well in a lot of cases, but it also helps you identify the times when you really want one, such as also in your eBay example. Got it. One kind of interesting uh, parallel to this targeting of ads is the general increase in recommender systems on the internet. So Netflix is going to spend a lot of effort trying to determine what movies you want to watch and is going to suggest them to you. So I don't know if you've thought about this, but is there, uh, what is the relationship between advertising in which the advertiser pays for the kind of to show the recommendation versus when a platform is choosing it itself? interesting um, I of course go to my research and I, I see parallels in these two literatures in that why do we have retargeting in its current form or these or certain kinds of ad units they're often designed by computer scientists who are trying to optimize a very simple algorithm which may be just revenue maximization rather than a more difficult one, which could be profit maximization. And similarly, with a recommendations algorithm, maybe you're maximizing something like click-throughs or something like this. Now, in advertising, what I found is that just taking a purely computer science approach is often backfires if you fail, if you ignore the decades-long research about consumer psychology. Mm -hmm. um, you know, free targeting, you, you made the very simple point, which is, I've stopped looking at it. I'm probably not in the market. But often a computer science algorithm won't naturally incorporate that unless you put that kind of behavioral impulse in it. And what I've seen with recommender systems is something similar in that they tend to be based on, you know, the most obvious correlations in the data. But let me give you two pieces of research which I think actually help you think about how these could be improved in the future. The first being that uh, it was some research done by my colleague, Glenn Urban, where he showed that if you changed a recommender system to reflect how people think, that is whether the kind of person who's sort of touchy-feely or more clinical, then you could actually develop a far better recommender system. And so the idea was giving a recommendation system to people's personal traits. And I've been working on a follow-up to this kind of idea with a colleague called Oliver Emmerich from, um, who's based in Switzerland. And what we found there is that actually with a recommender system, 
What you naturally usually have is like it shows you one or two products that people have normally bought. But, and the categories are not really well thought out. So if you think about Amazon, right, sometimes, you know, you sort of see these are what other people's bought, but they might not be in the same category or what that you're, with what you're thinking about. And what we show is that there's a great difference in how people tend to categorize things. So say, for example, when people buy food, sometimes people think about food in terms of meals. This is my lunch purchase. Sometimes think of, people think about buying meals in terms of this is my vegetables, this is my dairy. And if you can actually create a recommender system which reflects people's natural mental categorization, that is, are you the kind of person who categorizes products in terms of their benefits for you or in terms of whether their features look similar or whether their functionality is similar, then you can vastly improve its performance. So my prediction for recommender systems is they've got a lot to learn from psychology and trying to build that into a straightforward computer algorithm. Yeah, that's interesting. And you definitely see that Netflix has actually taken on this lesson because they explained to you why they recommended what they did. So their categories like reflect how people think about movies. So a drama with a strong female lead might be something that they tell you um, or they might tell you that this is a new popular movie. And those are people, things that people naturally think about when they think about movies. Uh, so uh, I think you're right, and we will see a lot more of this in the future. Another trend in digital advertising is actually the format of the advertising has changed drastically over time, uh, so over the past 15 years. And you have done some research on this, so can you talk about that? Um, so if we if so, let's think about the ways the format has changed since the first electronic billboard. And uh, you know, if I was an advertising industry spokesperson, I would emphasize how advertising has become a lot more engaging. And I might add the aside benefit that it's difficult to miss. Um, if, as a consumer, though, it's not clear that this is that desirable for me because what we're really meaning by these words is that advertising is actually becoming more intrusive and potentially more flashy and more distracting. Um, now, what I find interesting, though, in the ad is in the evolution of the ad unit. Is if you think about it in the sort of 2000, 2005 period when the Internet was really taking off, I think it's fair to say that advertising became ever more intrusive. And then since then, we've seen a retreat from more intrusive formats towards back to the sort of simple idea of an uninteresting or unflashy electronic billboard. And I did some research to try and explain this. And what I found is that there's actually a trade-off between how flashy or how intrusive the ad format is and how much you can target to someone's interests. In that... If it's the case that you have identified a customer who is already, for whatever market, say, in the market for diapers, then the kind of ad that they want is actually informative. If you have a diaper ad that takes over their website with a flashing sort of baby's bottom with a diaper on it, that's actually going to backfire. They're not going to respond positively to that. On the other hand, a nice informative ad can work incredibly well. So when would you ever want an intrusive ad? You want an intrusive ad only when you can't target. 
That is, let's imagine a scenario where someone turned up at the New York Times website, no idea what they wanted. Then that's when an intrusive ad may work because you don't have anything interesting to say to that person. So you need to grab their attention another way. So what the way I explain the history of the evolution of the ad unit is simply that it got more intrusive and then we got better at targeting and showing relevant ads. And as a result, we've actually retreated to flatter and less sort of flashy or obtrusive ad formats. Um, and that's, a, I think, one of the unseen benefits of targeting for the consumer. So when you say that an ad is informative, what exactly do you mean? Does it have the price or, or other features? Is that is that what you're talking about? So I mean, it actually goes into detail about what the product can offer you. Uh-huh. Now, that may include something about the price, but probably it would be feature-orientated actually explain to me as a consumer why it is that this particular brand of dampers, uh, diapers will leak less than the other brand. Got it. Just out of curiosity, uh, with the kind of spread of native advertising, is there really enough in a tweet in order to be informative? Do you consider tweet advertisements informative advertisements? Oh, interesting. Um, so... They're informative in the sense that they're very text-based, and text-based ads work well if they're highly targeted, so we might have some optimism there. Um, I will say in general that I have a very dismal view of advertising on Twitter. Um, We did some research, and and the reason I, I say I have a dismal view is that I was trying to, the idea of this research was we were trying to think, well, what's different about Twitter? And we thought, well, maybe what's different about Twitter is you have some people who really lead trends and spread new information to their followers. And perhaps we can advertise to them and be incredibly efficient in our advertising. That was the idea. And you know what we found? The kind of people who tweet early about news stories, set trends, make trends, just don't react to advertising. You can show them ads. They just won't click on it. So as a consequence... Given what is different about Twitter, it seems that what it makes Twitter different is not an advantage or works against them for advertising. Interesting. So is the theory that these people that have a lot of influence, their attention is already so scarce and their reputation is so valuable that they one would not click and two would not share unless uh, they had very strong incentives to do so? I think that's, um, that's right in the actual paper. What we showed to sort of bolster that is that if the advertising tweet feels less like an ad, so in our example, we tweaked it to sort of make the brand be from Brixton, which is a current hipster kind of place. Mm-hmm. Then these uh, trendsetters were more likely to be willing to treat it because it sort of fell into how they thought of their identity. The problem is with both mar- most marketing communications, if you start retweeting them or clicking them to your followers, and highlighting them, it sort of destroys who you're trying to be or the entity you're trying to project on Twitter. So I think that's more the reason. It could, we were worried it was more to do with the, um, you know, just something you didn't have enough attention. We couldn't find any evidence of that. Instead, it seemed to be more about the image you were trying to project on Twitter. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. But I guess uh, just to follow up on this uh, Twitter conversation, Twitter does also have the so-called interest graph. So you might think that it would be effective for targeting not only the influencers, but also just regular users that have uh, a lot of people that they're following. 
and that is informative. Yeah, so I mean, I, I view that as being the reason you're exactly right that they can do that. And it's much like Facebook knows my interests. So I think they can be a Facebook mimicker in uh-huh. that sense, do something similar. But the one thing they have which might be unique or different from Facebook is not so useful as an advertising platform. I think you're right. They have something, but it's not something particularly distinctive. It's something which makes them more like Facebook. Okay. So next I want to move on to this uh, great debate between uh, privacy and and advertising. So uh, I'll let you uh, kind of uh, set up the framework for how should we be thinking about the benefits of information versus uh, the cost of privacy. Okay, so let's first off by, by saying that at the heart of the privacy debate is the question of whether trade-off is something we should ever think about. Um, so there are many people within the privacy debate, and I think drive the privacy debate, who say the moment you start talking about trade-offs is the moment we don't respect privacy. Now, where I have sort of fallen in this debate, this is an economist, you heard the way you introduced this segment, you're naturally going to start thinking about trade-offs in that we can have more informative advertising, but there's a downside in that to do that, we're going to have to share data. Um, and that's what I view the privacy trade-off. But I just want to highlight for the audience here that though it might seem clear to an economist as a trade-off, and I think it's sort of a very functional trade-off, for people who are passionate about privacy, I think they reject the idea that, that we should trade off the two because the privacy part for them is something that shouldn't be touched. Yeah, that, that's really good to know. That's, 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 sort yeah. of, that's where we start off. So um, let me tell you where, why perhaps some of my research has been less than popular, I think, with people who, who are very concerned about privacy. And a lot of my research on advertising has focused on... Uh, how privacy regulations or attempts to protect people's privacy has affected how well advertising works. And one paper we wrote looked at how advertising effectiveness changed in Europe relative to the US after the 2002 directive in the EU, which basically had various components, which restricted somewhat data um, or the use of data for advertising. And one thing I want to highlight is, of course, because it's the EU and it was a directive, various countries interpreted in this different ways. And that's part of the variation we use in this paper. But what we found is that this small change in how much data you could use actually had a huge effect on how well advertising worked in Europe, and it actually reduced effectiveness by 66%. And that's just a very, very large number. And the way I always put that in context is just simply... Most online advertising doesn't work. People just ignore it. And so the moment you take away the one thing which could make it work, you can get large numbers in terms of effectiveness changes. What was the measure of effectiveness? So that's interesting um, in that what we used was actually the standard measure used by most advertising agencies, which is that you measure an incremental lift in something called stated purchase intent. And you show half the people the ad, the other half people not the ad, and you see the difference between them. So it's a nice, clean measure 
of effectiveness. I think the one drawback from an economist's point of view is it's just what people say. Am I going to buy the product? Um, having said that, there have been plenty of studies showing it's correlated with actual purchase and actual purchases. And it's the major way we measure advertising effectiveness in the in the industry. So given that, you know, we still think it has some real world implications. Well, I'm a little bit confused about that because my th understanding was that click through rates was how we might measure uh, how the standard way that uh, effectiveness oh, is measured. Now, that's really. So let me clarify the kind of advertising we were measuring was actually your regular display ad. Oh, okay. And if you think about these were branded display ads for large firms like the Toyota GM. And the aim of these ads were not to really have you click through, but instead to get the brand and logo out there. You're right that if we if we had decided to do this on search advertising, our lives would have been a lot easier because we could have just had a click click through. We instead were measuring more traditional advertising units, which were meant to have a long-term effect on people's relationship with the brand. Interesting. And I guess, how do you think your results would change if we considered either search advertising or Facebook advertising? My guess is that with search advertising, we would see less of a change. And the reason I say this is that if you think about search advertising, you're putting data in at the moment you need it about the thing you want to be, to be advertised to the most. So in other words, they have a perfect way of identifying what ad to show you. The sites and which really suffered from the policy that we studied were sites like news sites, internet service sites, politics sites, sites where it wasn't easy to really monetize the content. I think with search advertising, because the very nature of it makes it easy to monetize, we wouldn't see so much an effect. On the other hand, Facebook, you're not going to a social media platform necessarily to buy something. My guess is there we might have seen a far bigger effect. Interesting. So in some sense, Google has an incentive to push these uh, restrictive uh, <laughs> uh, advertising regulations because then they offer the most effective advertising channel. Uh, but on the other hand, we might actually be thinking that if the reason why we care a lot about advertising effectiveness is because it subsidizes our content consumption, then uh, this is a huge problem because we want these uh, good news sites to continue existing. That's right. And there's actually been a nice paper written um, by Monique from Boston University and Feng Zhu from Harvard University. And they wrote uh, a paper which showed how when you start to allow people to monetize blogs, how the content changes. And they saw basically exactly this, a shift from the more news, um, politics style of analysis to something that's more easily monetizable, such as travel or babies. Interesting. So, <laughs> uh, so I guess uh, that's at this seems like a very strong argument for uh, at least sacrificing some amount of privacy uh, for the benefit of uh, the advert advertising industry. So the way I always think about it is, you know, we have choices. And if we choose to heavily regulate the use of data, we're going to have a different internet. And that internet will have two features. The first feature is that it'll be hard to support non easily monetizable content. And given the history of public support for 
public broadcast networks and so on, it means that we're going to lose some new sites, which goes against sort of, I think, existing policy objectives. The other thing, way I think the internet may change is you remember I was talking about the trade-off between how much you target and how intrusive the ad unit is. Yeah. If we can't use data to target relevant advertising, make it interesting that way, we're going to end up back in an era, back to 2002, for a lot more sort of hit the monkey ads taking over your websites. Of course, there are these uh, ad blockers that are <coughs> quite popular that might prevent such strategies from working. Uh, do, do you think that ad, ad blockers are going to be effective or are effective for the majority of people in, in blocking these intrusive oh, advertisements really interesting so i think so this is i think always one of these big divides between people who study these things and the rest of the world in that you know most computer scientists privacy researchers would dream of heading out to a world where they didn't have an ad blocker in but we know that many people dislike jump the monkey or taking over ads or even ads in general and still don't use uh, an ad blocker even though it might be easy to install on um, something like Firefox. So my guess is that the ad blocker effect is going to continue to be a niche niche solution and not a general solution. All right. Interesting. I, did, I didn't know that uh, the spread of ad blockers were so small. Um, so well, that's because we're in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? And all of your friends, you know, all of my yeah. friends, all of our friends, right? Um, yeah. But we can get some data. You can get some data about how, how slowly and easy to use piece of technology is diffused. Okay. Um, so the last uh, topic that I want to touch on uh, is going to be big data more broadly. So you wrote a, a piece examining whether big data is a source of uh, sustainable advantage for, for companies, so can you talk about that? Of course, so let me tell you what motivated this paper. So when I started teaching, one of my, and I had to sit in another professor's class, and one thing I always enjoyed was where he demolished all the students' ideas of what could form a competitive advantage, in that usual suspects, such as your people, um, a superior product, all of these things, tend on close examination to not warrant you being able to say this is a competitive advantage. And I wanted to do the same kind of analysis for big data. And the reason I wanted to do this is, as you know, you know, and I understand that sort of the excitement and froth around the uh, big data is paying, you know, for, for your postdoc and, <laughs> you know, the center. So I don't want to put it down. But I just wanted to do the same thing to try and think about, well, is big data something we should think of in the category of our people, our product, that is something we need to get right to maintain short-term competitive advantage, or is it something that might we might think about from a long-term perspective? And what I did was I used a very traditional strategy framework, and I should say, I oh, this is joint work with Anya Lambrecht at LBS, uh, which actually we like to think came from MIT, from Berger Wernerfeld, though there are other people who also worked on the theory, and in general, there were some interesting findings. First of all, that big data is not rare. One of the reasons we talk about it so much is because so many companies have it. Um, when it comes to being valuable, 
Often it's not really the big data as such which makes it valuable. Instead, it's having the data scientists and the kind of experiments we've been talking about to actually make sense of the big data, which is driving value. So you shouldn't say big data is valuable. Instead, it is the people you can employ to make sense of the big data, the algorithms you can run to make it big data, to make it valuable. Simply because, in general, big data is just by itself a potential hogwash of correlations which you can get from having so much data which don't actually have any causal implication. So in general by itself it's not valuable. Then we come to the idea of is it non-substitutable? And one thing I want to highlight, and this is something which I, I'm going to be honest makes a lot of people uneasy, is that in the current economy there is a whole host of companies that actually sell you substitutes for big data. Um, and as a consequence, if I wanted to, I can actually buy or purchase in a lot of the insights any one of my competitors may be able to get in from using the big data. So that's that's another worry. And um, so I'm, that, I'm honest, I'm in a storm. Go, go ahead, though. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to push back on oh, that. Oh, you should a push bit. back, of course. Yeah, so. You're certainly right in the, in the sense that for demographic type information or even maybe web browsing type information, you can purchase data on a particular cookie. But for product usage information, it seems like it's less substitutable. So, for example, the case that I'm most familiar with Airbnb has a lot of data about how people use Airbnb. And there's no substitute for that. And it's really important in designing a better product designing a better marketplace for those users. So I don't disagree that you still need the data scientists and other individuals to make use of that data, mm -hmm. but it seems like if uh, a competitor did try to come in, they would have a hard time finding substitutable data. Okay. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm really glad you went to the Airbnb, right? Because we then actually use it f as an example for sort of last point. Right, just, you know, your argument is, look, we have amazing data to make a better product. I don't disagree with that. Um, in the same way, you have amazing employees to make a better product. <laughs> um, however, let's be clear, when you entered, when Airbnb entered, I'm using you to represent all of Airbnb. But yeah, no, that's not just quite as right. a side comment, I, I certainly do not represent Airbnb. He does not represent Airbnb. I just want to make that clear. So who had like really great data on, you know, to understand this sort of product? Um, there are many firms in the industry that you entered. You might think the hotel firms know a lot about, say, especially the ones that had had the sort of Town Hill Suite style of product, which were more long term, uh, which had a lot of data about how to improve the customer experience. Similarly, you had other firms that already existed, such as VRBO, HomeAway, that had a similar kind of business model. All the data they had didn't stop there, stop you or stop Airbnb doing a far better job. So, and so, though I certainly agree with you that now you've got this wonderful data set to help you improve the product, but it wasn't really non substitutable in that you're emblematic of the way that you can enter a market with basically no data and do a lot better job than incumbents. So, I'm not actually sure about this because one, I view Airbnb's innovation on the product side as focusing on the urban rentals market, which these other competitors were not focused on. 
but secondly, uh, the business model of Airbnb actually collects by default more data than its competitors, such as HomeAway at that time period, because Airbnb sees the entire transaction. The transaction takes place on the mm -hmm. website, so it's much easier to understand uh, which transactions occurred and whether those were good or bad transactions. So, you see, I don't think we're in disagreement in no. that I see, I think we view Airbnb's innovation the same way, and that if I would say, so what's, what did they really do very, very well? It was coming up with a reputation system which made people feel assured who might not have otherwise been in the market to list an apartment and to make it easy, to make it reliable, to make it transparent. Now, as a consequence of building that system, they ended up building a system which had a lot more data. But for me, it was that insight that what's the problem in this market is that really we don't like to stay at other people's houses or have other people stay at our houses without a lot of reassurance, which led Airbnb to collect the data which makes their system possible. So for me, it's all, other firms could have done this. Airbnb built a better system, which ended up collecting more data and used that data better. But for me, it's the better system. It doesn't fall from the fact they had the big data in the first place. I see, I see your point. One comment would be just, let's think about Google maybe. Uh, Google has their search ranking algorithm and you might argue that Google, on the one hand, is an example of how you can enter a market with a lot of competitors and, uh, and succeed even when you don't have the data to start with. But on the other hand, it seems like once Google had entered and had found the so-called right way to do things, it was really hard to compete with Google. So Microsoft has been desperately trying to do so for a very long time. And uh, some people argue that one of the reasons uh, that they're still not, not as successful as they could be is that their search engine has been worse. In fact, that's what Microsoft argues when they uh, debate uh, Google mm -hmm. in various regulatory courts. Yeah, so I mean, I'll give you my viewpoint on this. So first of all, what shocks me still is just as a search engine, how many searches on Google are unique? I believe it's more than half of all search, search queries are actually unique. Um, and for those, it seems to me about an algorithm process of how you interpret those search queries rather than past data. The other thing I'll say about Google's, the value of Google's data, and I want to be clear that when I say this, this is, I think, a deeply unpopular view at Google, so I will say that you know, quite up front, is that I did a study once where we looked to see what happened to Google's search accuracy, to search engine search accuracy, that's not Google, but search engine search accuracy, um, as a result of some changes in Europe, which basically changed how long they could store data for. And so a few years back, uh, the EC made some noise and various search engines made promises to not retain search records for rather than like 24 months, they didn't retain them for three months. We looked to see what happened uh, in terms of search engine accuracy, which we just mentioned very simply, which is whether you go back to the search engine to search again. And we saw absolutely no effect from reducing the amount of data stored from 12, 24 months to three months. 
And for me, that sort of tells a story about why data's that Google's data has limited value in that it's got a very short time span, a very short time span um, in terms of being able to use it to predict what people want to see. Hmm. I guess. Uh... And so that, that sort of makes me more hopeful that this market is more contestable than I think is sometimes pronounced. Yeah. I, by the way, I think the market is definitely contestable. Uh, I would say that uh, even with three months of data, Google still has more, much more data than any of its competitors. So I'm not really sure that, you know, uh, data is still not a source of sustainable competitive advantage for them. But I think that with a lot of these uh, platform-like businesses, uh, it's a change in the way that people use, for example, devices that might result in, in, the, in an ultimate disrupt, disruption. And the one that I spend a lot of time thinking about is these messaging interfaces oh. where instead of going to Google, you might go to your messenger and, and ask your virtual assistant to, to find something for you and they'll just give you the right answer. You know, I think that's exactly right. We, you know, we often, there's a strange thing about the digital economy that at any one time there may be a few dominant firms, then we will get worried about how long they're gonna be dominant. And we forget the history, right, of the internet and, you know, you forget the history of Alta Vista ceding to Yahoo and then eventually it's ceding to Google. And similarly, with something like Facebook, it's easy to forget the Friendster, followed by the MySpace and just how quickly they were displaced. And you see that too in the kind of messaging apps that, that you look at. It looks at one time like WhatsApp will take over the world, but then the next thing is easy to switch to. And so all of this, just the fact that we have this history of companies with just huge amounts of data and then a small product innovation, or as you say, a shift from how we use a device in a certain way makes redundant any value that data can be. That's why I've sort of, I think that's why I've taken the more sort of slightly contrarian point of view that big data is not all you need for a competitive advantage. Interesting. Well, uh, on that note, this has been a fascinating conversation and thanks for coming on to the show. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for letting me rant on for so long. That was a really fascinating conversation. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a review on iTunes. Till next time, I'm Andre Fratkin, and this was Economic Frontiers.